So, well, first of all, thanks for doing this, man. I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, Happy to be here. And Joe, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Not good morning. Is it afternoon? Or morning. Or is it evening? I don't know. I lost track of time. And what is time? It was dark when we started this. Did you lose track of space? Again? No, we're fine. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's, it's getting light up. Um, yeah, we didn't even think about lighting with this perspective. Anyway, okay, so <laughs> we're here today. We're going to talk about the implications of exercise on the immune system. And specifically, how does it impact your immune system for better or for worse? Okay, and with us today, we have Caleb Boltzmann. Uh, a resident, a physical therapy resident, to be exact, and we're very grateful to have you here and to share your thoughts, your perspectives, and who you are. So, why don't you go ahead and uh, introduce yourself and discuss what you are, who you are, where you come from, what you want to do, everything like that. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, Caleb Holtzman, like you said, uh, graduated physical therapy school at University of Illinois Chicago uh, this past May, 2020. So. We had a virtual graduation. Graduation, um, pretty pretty interesting way to go out. We we got our clinicals cut short in March, um, but thankfully we were past the the limit that CAPT set to be able to graduate, and that's what things. We finished our classes online, um, graduated virtually, and then passed the boards in July. Um, my original plan was to do travel travel PT. Um, that whole industry was kind of kiposhed by COVID. So luckily for me, the, the residency program was kind of more of an afterthought for me, but it's been such a blessing in disguise to uh, have it. You know, mo most residencies you do have to apply um, in the fall for the next year. Uh, luckily for me, this, this residency was, the application had not, deadline had not passed yet. So I was able to apply and then um, come down to Southwest Florida, Port Myers, and uh, start the orthopedic residency. Um, it's been great. Okay, great. We um, we're glad to have you, man. I, I really enjoyed your interview. Thought you're an excellent candidate. Um, it's re really, really important. It's of the utmost importance that we uh, we're not only helping you pursue this level of greatness that you see in yourself, and the endless possibility of what you can do, but. It's also very important to build a relationship with you, be friends with you, and uh, build that rapport relationship so that way, in, in essence, not only does it help you grow, but it also helps us grow. Mm -hmm. it, it's pushing the, uh, the profession forward. I hope so. Yeah. I hope so. Um, in that point, why did you choose a resident, a physical therapy residency? It's optional right now within our uh, career. You don't get paid any extra especially when you're doing it. You know. You're paid less. <laughs> right. Um, and so right now there's not advancement. There's no advancement for it. Why? The, the main thing is the, the mentorship. That's, that's the key piece. That's the main, main sell, at least for me. Um, coming out of school, you're, you're a generalist. You're a general physical therapy practitioner where you can work in acute care, outpatient, any different setting that you want to do. So... Coming out of school, you had your, your, we had 38 weeks of scheduled clinicals. I think we completed 34, um, which is great, you know, but you only get so far. And, and then when you're treating your own patients, you know, you still have, you know, confidence to gain and the efficiency and, and everything else. 
So having that one-on-one -on -one mentorship with the residency program from a skilled clinician who is also an OCS uh, orthopedic clinical specialist, they kind of help you guide your thought process to be able to think more critically, more efficiently within sessions and get to your diagnosis, prognosis faster and, and better. So it's just a really good transition out of school to, it's almost like a, a better and more focused clinical rotation that you would get in school that you now get as you're working, getting paid, um, starting your career. So it's, it's just a really good segue from school to the workplace. Okay, I can certainly understand that. I remember my uh, first year of practice, and it was, uh, you know, throwing you in the fire, and you're like, Yeah, like, <laughs> no, yeah, what do, what do I do? So, um, and then there's a lot of life lessons that, uh, if not for that, I don't know. I don't know if I'd be as seasoned as uh, as you give me credit for, but or <laughs> our other mentors, but they are. Our mentors and wow. faculty are phenomenal. Yeah. And uh, again, this was initiated and implemented to better the profession, but not just the profession. Most importantly, w was to provide the most up-to-date, evidence-based, creative and innovative solutions for patients, for people. When I'm 60 years old, you know, 42 years old, I hope that I have the uh, level of expertise that's cutting edge enough to help me with whatever ailment or condition I may be suffering from. That will help me get my feet faster and live a, a, a great life, a life of quality as opposed to quantity. So that's the, that's the initial goal. The second goal is to cultivate physical therapists lead that charge and change life, not just professionally, but personally for the better, for the most optimal reasons. And we were talking about history of physical therapy before, and the people that came before us were trailblazers. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but they actually intentionally, when they formed their own societies and charters, they were not physicians. Um, these initial physical therapists intentionally used a scientific format to scrutinize their treatments and compare them to patient outcomes with other therapists in hopes to see what actually works and what doesn't. And they didn't have to do that. At that point in time in the 1800s, that wasn't something that was thought of. Nobody really... It was pretty experimental at that point. Yeah, and as authority, you know, you just you go to the doctor and you do what the doctor says. But these trailblazers, uh, they figured out right away what was important. And that's something that I would say, coincidentally enough, is innate within all of us. Some of us express it more than others. So to hear you talk about it, there is no difference between you and the so-called guru. There is none. What limits you is you your limitations and so you can be as great you can be as complacent as you want to be and it doesn't matter it just depends on what you want and uh i think you're going to do great things and i i i i can't say it as a fact but i i just have a good feeling about you in general so i'm glad you're out of board um okay 
Do you have any other insights, any other passions that you want to pursue or embark on or talk about? Passion is a big word for Saturday morning. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Um... I do so. One of my one of my life goals is to be uh, bilingual. I do want to be um, learn Spanish and be able to you know diversify my my uh, clientele. You know, be able to treat um, potentially you know, my marginalized populations and uh, help help that. Because I, I do think physical therapists have. Uh, social responsibility to be able to treat not only people who can do cash-based and, and everything else, but also the people who need it, who can't afford it, or don't have insurance or that sort of thing. So we, we do need to, as a society, reach out to, you know, all members who can benefit from our services. So you're a bit altruistic with your profession? A little bit. What about what about you personally, though? Like, what... Is there anything you particularly enjoy, anything that you want to embark on that's not a part of the profession or that could be a part of the profession? Or any, what else makes Caleb Caleb? Caleb Caleb. Well, I, I do like exercise, you know, general exercise. Uh, I play a lot of sports. When I came down here, I learned pickleball my first week down here. You know, it's, it's pretty big for the <laughs> southwest Florida population. Um, I have some coworkers that say it's a old man sport. Well, Old person sport, not too young for that, but no, it, it gets pretty competitive. It's pretty fun. Um, rollerblading, uh, hiking. I like downhill skiing. You know, just being being outside and uh, moving. I like soccer. Big Liverpool fan. Okay. Um, well, where did you say? Where were you raised? Where did you come from? Uh, originally from St. Louis, Missouri. Um, okay. Yeah. Do a lot of good therapists that come out of that area. They have uh, St. Louis University's there, Wash, mm-hmm. Wash U, and then um, Maryville University, which is, I think, three, three maybe four physical therapists, top yeah, physical therapy schools yeah, in St. Right. Louis. Um, but yeah, you just want to, you want to have fun with life, and you want to like enjoy things and help people in the process. Like anyone else. <laughs> okay, so what we'll do is, uh, unless you have anything to add or you want to interject later on, we'll talk about... Um, the use of exercise and immunity. Okay. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about the immune system, we oftentimes think of just the immune system, you know, or, and for the people that are well versed in immunity, they think about, you know, white blood cells, you know, to put it plainly. Mm-hmm. But we, we need to simplify it, but also be specific. We need to think about what the innate immune system is, uh, and that would basically be to our listeners and viewers. The innate immune system is what you inherit from your, your mother and your father, particularly your mother. So you'll inherit certain antibodies that will vaccinate you from certain uh, diseases or infections that your mother may have exposed. One of the most famous and notorious is the IgA, immunoglobulin A antibody. Um, but that's just an example. It's usually considered to be your first line of defense. Its job um, is to attack foreign particles. Anything that it detects as being an enemy of the system, it's going to attack. All right. It will initiate the repair of tissue that may have been damaged or harmed. Okay. So it's in a way it's responsible for inflammation and swelling. It will inform and also modulate the second part of your immune system, known as the adaptive 
system or the um, acquired immunity, okay? It, it makes up the physical barriers, such as your skin, the mucosal lining of your lungs, your intestines, throughout your body. It, your hair is also a part of that. Your nail beds are a part of it. Um, your cellular membrane is a part of that as well. The cellular membrane is very important. Most things in life are water-soluble, meaning that they travel through water relatively well. But the membrane of your cell, of every cell in your body, has uh, a lipid barrier. And we all know oil and water doesn't mix. So that, that fatty layer, that fatty outer layer, will penetrate, will prevent anything from penetrating it. Um, sometimes it does, but if the cell wants something to come in, it has a receptor for that, which is a protein that will kind of mash together like uh, a puzzle piece and pull it in, okay? Mm -hmm. So that's part of, the, uh, of your innate immune system. Macrophages, neutrophils, uh, which are responsible for eating these uh, foreign particles are part of the innate immune, uh, immune system. You have dendritic, uh, I'm sorry, they, they produce degradative enzymes. They also produce cytokines. Not all cytokines are inflammatory. Some are pro-inflammatory, some are anti-inflammatory. And cytokines are getting a lot of attention right now because of COVID. So that's the big thing. And so again, that's going to be your macrophages and neutrophils, which is a part of your innate immunity. They also uh, produce antimicrobial peptides. So peptides, little proteins that will basically scrub the outer layer of the cell and get rid of any bacteria or any sort of microbiota, microflora, viruses, protozoa, whatever may be present. They release reactive oxygen species and also saves you from reaction, reaction reactive oxygen species. So those are the little the nasty buggers that destroy the uh, cellular membrane of tissues. Um, they release proteins that will signal your uh, the acquired immunity, and they will initiate an infl inflammation. There are also natural killer cells, dendritic cells, mast cells, basophils, and eosinophils also make up the innate immunity. So it's large, it's huge. Get a lot of attention lately. We've kind of ignored it for a while in medicine, and now we're paying more attention to it. The first line of defense for immune for our immune system. You guys, have anything to add to that or to mention? That was pretty pretty thorough. Yeah, it was hard to add on to. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Well, there, okay. Yeah. So there are the soldiers that stand at the gate to protect you. Okay. Yeah. The second part of your immune system is uh, the acquired immune system. That's what you pick up in life from your experience and what you do. If you don't wash your hands or if you apply the uh, George Carlin method of hygiene, um, what was it called? Yeah, armpits, asshole, crotch, and teeth with one brush. In that order. <laughs> if you swim in shit, a.k.a. the Hudson River, you will develop, you'll get sick. Your body will be exposed to these uh, harmful uh, invaders of your body. And all they want to do is have babies. And in doing so, they damage your body. So your body will adapt to it and will develop mechanisms to kill it and to heal itself. And that is the acquired immunity. So it has a memory. And this is really cool. It has a memory of what it's fought. And so when it's introduced to that same bacteria that it fought 10 years prior, it's, it's equipped. It's ready to go. Mm -hmm. And you may not even know it because you may not have a symptom. Mm -hmm. 
That's will it not also adapt to cohabitate with some of these invaders? Yes, live in, live in uh, like a symbiotic nature. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's exactly right. We're going to talk about that a little bit. Uh, that has a lot to do with the, the gut, your, um, the big thing we talked about before, yeah. the microflora within the uh, gastrointestinal system. So, yes, you're absolutely right. So when kids are rolling around playing in dirt, is that beneficial for them? Extremely beneficial. And this is part of like this uh, weird idea, or people consider it weird. Make your kids roll around in dirt. Make them eat dirt. No, don't make them eat dirt. But by them getting exposed and you're not sterilizing them constantly, let them get sick so they build up an immune system. I don't want that to sound like anti-vaxxers, vaccinations are still important, especially against some really dangerous viruses. But it is important to uh, live in a symbiotic relationship with these in our environment well, and not be sterile. It's really not an anti-vax, it's more of a vaccination argument. That's right. right. To expose yourself to nature, to outside, to uh, organisms, as well as the vaccinations that we are basically exposing ourselves to uh, these these diseases in order to develop, to develop our defenses against them. To develop the acquired immunity. Yeah. Right. That's right. And you can break it down as simple as uh, you have one country versus another country. If they don't go to war, they don't know how to defend themselves. They don't know what to do to help themselves survive in the environment. And so if you live in a bubble and you're sterile all the time, you might you might be more prone to illness and sickness as well. I had, a, I had a friend in grade school who his parents kept a very clean house. You know, he was never sick as a, as a preschooler. You know, he's very clean, very, you know, bathed a lot. And then through grade school, he would get sick very often. He would get sick all through the winter and he would be out days at a time. And I think it was because he didn't have this built-up acquired immune system when he was playing as a preschooler. You know, it's... it's yeah goes back to that so it makes sense and if, and if the mother was like that imagine what she was doing doing to herself during pregnancy what so what kind of innate immunity did he have to, to be offered if she herself was sterile mm -hmm. this also goes to the concept of like allergies peanut allergies tree nut allergies in general or allergies to dander or whatnot and so what a lot of people do is they'll avoid, avoid eggs for a long period of time in childhood or avoid nuts and peanuts uh, for a long period of time or avoid um, exposure to animals for a long period of time uh, for a child. And then as a child gets older, they develop an, an immune response, an allergy. And then we say they have an allergy. Uh, this is contentious in medicine, but for the most part, it's the same concept. We started seeing more peanut allergies when we started avoiding peanuts for children. Whether or not that shows that there's a, that's a reason for the increase in, in the peanut allergy or tree nut allergy, we're not sure. It could certainly be that it's easier to diagnose, easier you know detecting it sooner, or many other reasons. But the idea that if you put someone in a bubble. They're going to, they're not going to develop or adapt to it, mm -hmm. bottom line. And so what we say is, as soon as you can, as early as possible, 
with whatever it is in life, whether it's um, having a knee replacement, start walking as soon as you can. You know, if you have a baby, breastfeed them, you know, and, and socialize them if you can. Don't put them in a bubble. And the reason is because it helps you develop a tolerance and uh, an ability to adapt to that environment. If you're walking right away after a knee replacement, you're probably going to have an easier time walking, right? Mm -hmm. If you walk when you have pneumonia, you're going to have some pulmonary clearance and you probably, you're going to have, well, we know, it's a fact. You're not going to have to be in the hospital that long and you're going to be able to overcome that infection a little quicker as opposed to somebody who lays in bed all day. It, goes, it points to the fact that, especially like after like a stroke, for instance, the, those first week, two weeks are essential, are so pivotal for the, the early recovery. You know, the, the first six months are really the biggest gains, but you can gain all the way up to a year or two years. But that, that initial training phase is so important in yeah. just developing that. Yeah, yeah, you're totally right. Um, so acquired immunity is adaptive. It's an, it's largely dependent on the immune, on the innate immunity, and it's also dependent on your environment. It's called the second line of defense. It too will combat invaders. It is antigen specific, which means it's developing those special uh, proteins, tools for cells that are being exposed to a virus or bacteria that's being killed. It develops those uh, special tools to either to fight back. Mm -hmm. And that's what we look for when we're seeing if somebody is immune to something. Yeah, and the the most common uh, illness that someone comes down with is like the common cold, right? Right. And we have the the flu vaccine every year, and we pe people may wonder, you know, why am I getting it every year, year after year? It's because there's not one specific strand of flu virus. It's always adapting and becoming different year after year. So I think I believe there's like over two hundred plus strands of cold or flu virus, bacterial, um, things that we can get infected by. That's why we keep getting sick year after year because our bodies are learning one specific strand but we can't fight off all these other strands. So it's, it's a counterintuitive argument that the more we get sick, the stronger we, got, we, we get overall because it's, we're adapting to all of these different types of strands and uh, right. yeah, strength, right. strengthening all of our different soldiers for battle. Right, exactly. That's exactly right. So we just released the, the vaccine for COVID, and we even just before that came out, we're already seeing at least two new strands that have come out in the last month or month and a half mm -hmm. of COVID. And it's like, well, yeah, we, we knew this is how these things evolve. So, well, we forget. We tend to lose sight that life is all around us. We, for whatever reason... We don't even take into the consideration that viruses and bacteria are living creatures, literally living creatures mm -hmm. that if they don't adapt, they die, mm -hmm. right? And their adaptation is built on the, the very um, fact that they need to utilize host cells or other cells yeah, to live, you know what I mean? So of course they're going to adapt. You and it's a different strand, but really it's almost like an evolution. Mm -hmm. And we we oftentimes refer to it as microevolution because macroevolution takes many many years. But that's what that is. Mm -hmm. They're evolving, so they don't their species doesn't die out. They too, like humans, want to spread their DNA and live as long as possible. And that's what they're doing. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So to finish the acquired immunity, uh, the 
the immune system in both the, the T lymphocytes and the uh, B lymphocytes. So they both have like a memory component. Yeah, your immune system, yes. And 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 let's be even more specific, the uh, memory isn't like lodged within the uh, the cell itself. It's a communication. Uh, a lot of times we refer to it in a number of different ways, but it's a communication of the immune system to other systems of the body. So we we'll talk a little bit about the the uh, the gut. The gut shares some crosstalk with the immune system. The neurologic, the CNS, the nervous system, also talks with the immune system, which is another way in which exercise is beneficial. So that constant communication—that's what memory is. The more you, the more the nerve, or the more the mucosal lining, or the more the T lymphocyte talks to other T lymphocytes or uh, um, to other other cells like a neuron, the stronger the memory. Okay, mm-hmm. just like just like muscle. It, I mean, the more a nerve tells your talks to your biceps, the more memory you have in your biceps for whatever it is that you're going to do. Yeah, look at those guns. Like those guns. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, and that that also determines tone, right? People that have good tone typically have. Um, good muscle memory or better kinesthetic awareness perhaps so you can kind of see the carryover with that which i think is like really cool uh, from from that perspective so is that how exercise kind of ties into this whole immune system discussion yeah yeah you're on track it's it's multifactorial uh but that's one of the ways so when you are, phys- and then again, we're going to be specific about exercise. Exercise is not getting the gym and just getting after it or going for a run or cycling. Doing something, a physical activity that you don't like, but you perceive it as exercise. Exercise is a supplement to physical activity. Really, the problem, the, the answer is physical activity. Movement. Movement. Move. Whatever you want to do. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to dig in the dirt, because you're an, uh, an amateur archaeologist, dig in the dirt. You're gonna get a better immunity because you're physically active and you're also exposing your body. But um, if you, right, right. If you sit on the couch all day and you don't move, and the only time you get up is to go to the bathroom, there is very little exposure to your environment, and you're not moving. Mm-hmm. So where's the talk? So yeah, you're at, you're you're right. So we'll start getting after that too. Um, and that, that's actually a, a great point because we know without a doubt it's a fact that if you do nothing. If you're not physically active, you have an increased risk for infection and illness. And because of that increased risk of infection and illness, you have a higher opportunity of death. We call that mortality. So you have a higher risk for mortality. Mm-hmm. So they say they say nowadays that uh, sitting is the new smoking. Yeah. So, so you're by by sitting, you're just doing yourself a disservice. You're getting your 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 body's not getting any stronger. You're actually deteriorating essentially. So. That's not, I, I don't disagree with that, but there's a reason why they were saying that for a lot, and now they're kind of like tampering back on that. There has been some literature, and if I'm not familiar of, of new literature that's come out recently to make that argument, I'm not familiar, but the most recent literature that I've, found, that I have heard of argues that sitting is not the new smoking. That we are wrong in saying so. We're basically jumping to conclusions and making large assumptions. We know that smoking is can cause cancer, not because of cause and effect necessarily within humans, but because of epidemiology, the relative risk. 
So what's the relative risk, statistical value within epidemiology? That if it's very strong, very high, and with smoking it was like 300 to 500% likely, we can deduce that the co- that there is a cause and effect because the relative risk is so high. So that's where we make the assumption. That's where we can safely make an assumption that smoking risk increases your risk for cancer. However, when we talk about sitting, and there are studies that have looked at people sitting for six hours, eight hours, ten hours, twelve hours, the relative risk for cancer, heart disease, diabetes. Uh, osteoporosis and all these other metabolic conditions, they increase, they do. But it's not at a point where we can say it's directly attributed. Does that make sense? I think that is, um, so I I think think that makes sense. I think that there, or maybe let me explain the way I'm perceiving that. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. They... We know that sitting isn't good because a lot of the times we'll see somebody get osteoporosis or we'll see somebody have a pulmonary function decline, uh, cardiovascular decline, but it's not necessarily all of those things. It's not all the conditions that they get. They might get one. Somebody else might not get what the first guy got, but he'll have another issue. Um, And, you know, everybody kind of gets different, may get a different issue. And is it because of that? that variety or that disparity between A, B, C, and D complications that, that individuals experience that maybe they don't want to tie it to the lack of activity or tie it to the sitting to say that sitting causes this, 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 and this. Yeah, you just can't specifically say that with factual evidence, with cause and effect, that sitting in fact does causes this health consequence, this health consequence, this health consequence. You can't actually say uh, it's the same thing as posture. You know, posture has, is an umbrella term. There's many different definitions of posture. Well, if you're sitting all the time, it ruins your posture. What definition of posture are you using? And does it? I would argue that humans are not meant to sit for long, long periods of time, that we are movers and sitters especially when you look at us in survival situations. There are times of sitting, times of lying down. However, it's, it's not for six, eight hours on the computer, right? It's a different type of sitting. It's a different type of lying down. It's a different frequency. It's a different amount of time. But humans, for the most part, that we know of, are movers. So, but the assumption that it's like smoking could be inaccurate. And when you make, when you make those type of claims... It's, it's it's just a hard thing to claim. It's it's, it's a right. it's yeah. It's a little bit further out. It's another reason is it's it's a hard thing to study. Yeah. So having this prolonged sitting, like if they do a prolonged like bed rest study, you know, not a lot of people are gonna volunteer for that. There there have been studies where they they look at thirty days of bed rest to mm-hmm. to simulate. Um, to study like astronauts because they don't have gravity, so they're, they're doing. Talking about the Belgian study, they're doing yes, they're the, doing the, the European Space Agency. They did bed rest. Yeah, yeah. Okay. they're doing like thirty days of bed rest to see how this like um, non weight bearing affected individuals, similar to like what space would be like, where they don't have weight bearing right. through their through their joints in the. And that was in the nineties. I and believe so. It was in the nineties, and the European Space Agency. Uh, later, with the support of NASA, and I believe they're trying to replicate this study for a longer period of time. They had uh, young men, and, I believe mostly men, healthy. college age, healthy. Yeah, healthy, 
healthy, no comorbidities, no problems, lie in a bed for 30 days. For 30 days, they couldn't even get up to go to urinate. They couldn't even, they had to piss in a pot. Bed pain, yeah. Yeah, they had to shit in a pot, poop in a pot, do everything in bed. And they're just basically looking at what we call hypogravity, but what is the effect of less gravity on the body? So that way they can understand, you know, space a little bit better. But they're looking at it from, okay, what happens to the bones? What happens to your circulation? What happens to your immune system? What happens to your cognitive function? Muscular system. Your muscular system, all these effects. And certainly enough, they had a number of conditions afterwards. They had difficulty walking. They had, you could argue, wobbly, wonky joints. They had a problem with fluid dynamics and circulation. They had an issue with immunity. However, that's lying down, not sitting. It's, it's just a, it points to the direction of sedentary lifestyle and right. across the age spectrum. You know, you, you look at studies that are, they look at sitting for four, six, eight, 10, 12 hours. But what if you do that for 50 years of your desk job? That's a great example. That's, that's a great. And hopefully we get some longitudinal studies like that. The best, the worst thing that sitting does is a, it appears and it's not a high relative risk, is that it has a higher risk for a type 2 diabetes. For a number of different reasons. Of, of, of all, everything else, yeah. sitting has a higher risk for type 2 diabetes. And I want to also say cardiovascular disease, but I'm not necessarily sure about that. But you could you could look <laughs> at the, the English bus study, of mm -hmm. the, comparing the bus driver versus the ticket collector. Yes. And the, the bus driver had an immense... Uh, Increased risk of mortality due to heart disease, cardiovascular disease, stroke, all of these risk factors because he was sedentary and the ticket collector. Well, yeah, don't you got to be careful. You can't say because he was right, right. driving cause and effect. Uh -huh. <laughs> it, it correlated or. Way to keep me in check. <laughs> right, right. Well, no, no. I just, yeah. I, you know, we just want to uh, be accurate with it because yeah. if you say because, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. somebody else is going to be like, well, no, I was told that this isn't this. And but it showed yeah. evidence for it. It's right. It had evidence for Yeah. I hadn't yeah. heard of that study. It's a classic. That is interesting. So it basically is just showing the bus driver who sat through the entire shift, most of the shift, uh, versus the ticket taker who's on his feet. Going up and down, down, down the aisle. The doubles after the bus. Yeah. But that's the argument, is that a less physically active job is correlated with more problems. Um, but then again, you got to take into many different other factors of the lifestyle as well, you know, mm -hmm. um, which that's why you can't say because mm -hmm. it's, it's possible that it is. But, uh, you know, we, we need to repeat the study and be more specific, maybe. Yeah. So this, this is kind of like one end of the spectrum where you're you're more sedentary. But then the other side of the, the spectrum is the exercise component. You know, mm -hmm. how, how does the exercise um boost the immune system, how does it make you healthier overall, and I think that's what we're diving into here. That's what we're diving into. So I think it's fair to say that we know that sedentary lifestyles increase your chances of problems. And physical activity in and of itself might be uh, have potential to do many things, uh, as I have notes here for. Um, should I start? Let's do it. Okay. So We're just starting now. <laughs> well, we've been, we're recording. So I was going to say, do I need to hit record or? Oh, oh good. Okay, right. Yeah. All right. So one of the first <laughs> studies, um, Astrul uh, um, Amatis, Astrul Amatis, 
uh, research uh, study done by him or her. They basically they looked at Winster rats. They were all female Winster rats. They tend to do pretty well with cardiovascular exercise. They split them up in two different uh, programs. One was a short intensive training session that consisted of uh, it was for two it was two weeks long, and they trained them twice a day for thirty minutes at a time. And it was running on like a little treadmill. They call it a treadmill, but they're running. And at the end of the uh, the uh, two weeks, they did a uh, they did an exhaustion test in the the baseline, they did an exhaustion test at the end. And then, of course, they sacrificed the rats and looked at uh, markers to see what, where did the, how did the immune system do. And what they found was that the immune system after that bit of training really didn't change. There was no difference. So, but again, that's two weeks, twice a day, um, which for a rat, that's a long, that's a long period of time. They have a short lifespan. The second group was called a longer intensive training session. They trained for five weeks. Okay, so they're looking for a longer duration. They trained three times a week uh, with two exhaustive uh, tests uh, as well. Okay, they when they finished, they compared a final exhaustion test to the baseline exhaustion test, as well as an additional twenty-four hour test to see whether or not the uh, immune system had changed. They also ran on a little treadmill, and what they found was that with the, the longer training session, that they had decreased um, phagocytic activity, meaning that the, the immune cells that eat the foreign invaders, which also cause inflammation, it's the, they're part of the first stage of tissue healing, which we need to talk about in a second, actually, um, decreased. So you could argue that inflammation decreased because of that. It decreased cytokine uh, secretion, which is also attributed. Remember, some cytokines are pro-inflammatory, some are anti-inflammatory. Most of them are, are most of them are pro-inflammatory. So it decreased that, and it also decreased the amount of reactive oxygen species. So what that means is, um, whenever you breathe, whenever you introduce a foreign particle through food or light, a lot of times you're introducing a reactive oxygen species with that uh, material, with the air, with the food, with the sunlight, and that species, that little oxygen is missing, it's missing an electron. And what it does is when it comes to a cellular membrane, it steals an electron from that cellular membrane. And that, that compound within the cellular membrane, that lipid layer, degrades. It, it keeps occurring, that reaction keeps occurring. So then another, uh, cell steals an electron on another cell and it starts to degrade the outer lining of that cellular membrane until it's no, no longer viable and the cell dies. And then that reaction continues. And that's the purpose of antioxidants and other nutrients like vitamin C. Things that we consider antioxidants, they what they do is they purposely sacrifice themselves. They give it an electron to prevent cellular damage, to prevent death. And in doing so, they... Uh, they basically transform into a, a substrate that we eventually flush out or recycle. Okay, so that's how that works. But longer training decreased phagocytic activity, cytokine secretion, and reactive oxygen species production. What it also did was it increased the natural killer cytotoxic activity, which is also so it increased the innate immunity, its reaction to any potential invaders, while decreasing possibly pro-inflammatory systems. 
It's kind of cool, but it's in rats, right? Right, so we right. don't know if that happens in humans. So basically, ready the defense system. Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And uh, at this point, let's talk about a couple of things uh, as we continue. Let's talk about the stages of tissue healing. Uh, when, when you were when you were studying PT or you were looking things up last night, how many uh, stages of uh, tissue healing did you come across? Typically, it's it's. Several, but three, like three to four main ones. Three to four, yeah. That's what I see all the time. I see either three stages or four stages. I like the four stages because it's a little bit more specific mm -hmm. in my perspective. And I like specificity, but uh, three to four different stages. Um, so the first stage is, what do you think? you want to do this? Yeah, you, you, you I can give it a shot. I can okay. give this one. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. Uh, for our listener out there. Yeah. Um, so the first one, inflammation. And correct me if I'm wrong, but inflammation. Okay. So you have that initial response in your body. We always think of inflammation as being bad, right? But inflammation is actually the body reacting to that foreign substance or that, that stimulus that causes the, the, the pain or the whatever, whatever you want. So it's the initial stimulus. You have that infl inflammatory response. After that, um, depending on the severity of the infection or you know, injury, you go into the proliferation phase, you know, a couple days or a week after or so. Um, proliferation phase is the starting of laying down the foundation work to, to heal, to, to repair, um, followed by maturation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, remodeling too. Remodeling. Or remodeling, it doesn't matter. Remodeling, maturation. Maturation. Yeah, same. Um, to then rebuild, hopefully back as close back to normal as you can. Or, You're doing great, Caleb. Yeah. <laughs> no, no worries. You're fine. Struggling through that. <laughs> You're okay. You're doing great. Uh, am, I, am I on that? And then You're there's right. the fourth one. Uh, what's the final no, one? You're, you're absolutely right. I'll expand a little bit on this. Joe, any words of wisdom, analogies, funny antidotes? Uh, I, I, I don't think so. I'll fuck something up in a second. You can make fun of me for it. Okay. <laughs> you're ready I'm okay. ready <laughs> okay <laughs> so um, yeah uh, that's the traditional three stage process that you okay got it there is no four stage after remodeling so the first stage if you're talking about specificity you're talking about the uh, hemostatic hemostasis mm -hmm. alright so the first stage uh, you sprain your ankle which means let's say from an arbitrary perspective you sprain a muscle, tear, all right? That tear leads to bleeding. It's a circulatory response, right? You bleed and you start to clot. You clot to basically stop the bleeding from whatever arterial, arterial supply, the capillary, whatever it may be. And the clot is uh, to prevent increased uh, loss of blood flow uh, uh, yeah, uh, from the circulation so that we don't bleed out completely. Mm -hmm. The second stage at that point is infiltration of inflammatory markers. So this is where the innate immunity system starts to work. So cytokines are produced by the monocytes and the, uh, the monocytes and the natural killer, right? I just want to be sure. Oh, the neutrophils, I'm sorry. So, yes, the macrophages and the uh, neutrophils start to produce cytokines. They leave the blood supply and they enter the peripheral tissues. Sometimes this is done in the blood supply, which also explains atherosclerosis. Uh, as far as infection and damage to the inter into the internal wall of the, of the blood vessel. But for purpose sake, we'll say you sprain your ankle, 
you tear a ligament or a muscle, you first step is you bleed and then you clot. Mm -hmm. The platelets in your blood supply clot to, to stop the, the loss of blood. Then you have the innate immune system, the cells that we mentioned earlier, uh, move in, they produce cytokines, they produce antimicrobial peptides, they produce, uh, I said cytokines, they produce a number of other um, of products like de degradative enzymes, they start to eat the damaged tissue because it's no longer viable. Mm -hmm. It's just there, okay? It's dead tissue. It's like the cleanup group. That's right. Clean it up. Get rid of it. This is uh, this also occurs during uh, autophagy when one fasts. Okay, so down the road we'll talk about fasting, but basically you're getting rid of the things that you don't need because mm -hmm. your body wants homeostasis and metabolic efficiency. So you get rid of the damaged tissue. If there's any foreign particles there, get rid of them too, okay? They eat them, they take them into the lymphatic vessels, and they ship them off into the lymph nodes. Get them out of there. Exactly right. Um, and I, yes, exactly. And so then at that point, when you start to swell those... Inflammatory proteins and cells that come in, your body wants to maintain um, a, a level of concentration within the within whatever system of the body. So it wants to maintain like a, a hydrostatic uh, concentration. It doesn't want one area to be overly concentrated with a number of proteins. So water will will come in. Now this is where it's beautiful. I think the body is absolutely beautiful. So it's multifactorial. You bleed, you already have platelets, it clots, boom, okay? Uh, when, you, when you bleed within your plasma, you have stem cells. So that little bit of loss of blood can theoretically release a little bit of stem cells in that area until it clots to allow the stem cells to start doing, you know, implantation, differentiating, start helping with the process. You also, when that you bleed within that plasma, you have growth factors in there, you have other... Uh, uh, biological uh, substrates that help with, uh, yeah, some hormones perhaps, that help initiate the healing process, which is really kind of cool. Uh, when the inflammatory process is occurring and you have those proteins there, the, the the water that comes in and swells, so your ankle swells, right? It gets black and blue. The black and blue is because of the blood that you you lost when you are bleeding before you clot. The swelling is there for a, for a couple reasons. One is it impairs your ability to move that joint, so you can't further harm or tear that tissue. Interesting. Beautiful, right? Also, what we have learned is that the, the, the edema is very rich in growth factors, cytokines, and stem cells. So the stem cells are, are now coming in to almost like a biological PRP to like try to help you heal. And, and you're certainly going to want to split yourself initially and to prevent further injury, right? So that was the second stage. The third stage is what you said before, is absolutely correct, the proliferative stage. Uh, proliferation, and, and, and what that is, we talked about this before, the body's gonna form a biological band-aid. You're gonna release what's called granulocytes, and it's cells that are gonna create tissue like that's mostly type three collagen, that's going to basically close the wound, suture the wound, hold it together, be a physical barrier so you don't get infected, right, like skin. Um, and it's going to also increase uh, angiogenesis, which means the growth of blood vessels. And those that increase of blood vessels are there to feed that biological band-aid so you can make it, but also, again, to bring in some circulation. Mm -hmm. And then it starts to heal from the inside out. Mm -hmm. That's 
Brilliant. Beautiful. It's, Brilliant. it's beautiful. And then the next stage is the remodeling process. You got the Band-Aid on there. You got some stem cells in there. You got some hormones in there. You got some growth factors in there. And next thing you know, your body's going to start to heal. And then famously, you had mentioned a second ago, we think of inflammation as a bad process, but it's stage two of the tissue healing response. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times we try to like squash it. We try to get rid of it because you're right. It does hurt. And, and the thing I failed to mention was with inflammation, you get an increase in temperature. And the reason why you get hot with inflammation is because temperature, an increase in temperature, kills foreign particles. So it's another way to prevent infection. So side note, what's your take on icing? Well, it depends on what you're trying to accomplish. A lot of times in physical therapy, traditionally, we say to ice an acute injury. The question is, should we? Should mm-hmm. we take an inset too? Uh, it depends. It depends on how much pain the person can tolerate. It depends on what they're trying to do. They have to walk on that ankle. Can they, do, do they need to? Are we going to facilitate tissue healing with ice or are we just going to squelch it? You know? So I think, I think the, my, at least my thought process behind it is when you have the initial injury, you're going to have an excessive inflammatory response potentially. And you're not trying to eliminate the the swelling or the edema, but you are trying to manage it to an extent. Is that accurate or no? You could say that it is, but who's to say that it's excessive? I was going to ask the same thing. I mean, we just talked about how beautiful and remarkable the whole system is. The fact that it does these things in order to, to heal is it really excessive, the fact that it's doing it? But I do wonder, in the case of somebody with who doesn't have <clears throat> normal circulation, has poor circulation, or a reason for the clearance to not take place as well as it would in a, a well-functioning body or, or limb, could that then become a, um, <clears throat> excessive? Um, That's what we think about in medicine. We think about... Oh, you don't need to. You don't need to go through this type of this stage. We need to calm it down to help you feel better. It's all about. It's really what it comes down to is we got to get you to feel better and get you moving as soon as possible because we know that moving as soon as possible is helpful. But there is an opportunity there where you kind of have to say to the patient, "All right, let's take it easy for a second. You know, give us some time. Let's just, let's just have recovery. Your body's doing what it's supposed to do. I don't know if it's if it's excessive. Nobody can tell you if it's ex- if it's excessive." I can tell you that another, on, on the opposite extreme, we argue whether or not um, they get stuck. They get stuck in a stage and they can't go further. They, it's always inflammatory and it never progresses to proliferative. Mm-hmm. So what do we do? We try to kickstart it, right? You know, one thing we, we should note about these stages is they're not, um, you don't finish one stage and then move to the next one. It's it's a continuum continuation of the spectrum. So you're constantly going in and out or, you know, gradually transitioning from one phase to the next. It's not just like a cutoff and then... That's right. That's exactly right. You go back and forth a little bit. You can. They kind of like feed, like as one process uh, has been there for a little bit and coming maybe to the end, the the midway of that, the other process already started. So Mm -hmm. there's a period of time when both processes are occurring. And then maybe you are moving a little bit and then, oh, you're injured it again mm-hmm. and you restart. Or, or, uh, so 
he said it he said it the right way it's a continuum and you're not just going from step one step two step three step four and so that's where we kind of have to use our best best judgment and clinical reasoning to determine whether or not we want to calm down the inflammatory process to help them because maybe they are more in a proliferative phase and we need to initiate movement to facilitate that phase yeah and we we always we always point to you know move 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 but the initial protocol is that the rice protocol you know rest ice compression elevation to allow that initial stages of healing but as we'll later discuss too the the exercise helps as you said facilitate moving on to the next stages that's right exercise also has can have pro-inflammatory components so that's where you go back and regress into these in these stages before you can go back so it's it's really tricky trying to find the right amount the dosage of exercise so you're not falling back into this inflammation inflammatory response right. and you're you're progressing through the stages of healing yes uh, exercise physical activity stimulates your body to heal but it doesn't heal you it stimulates you it breaks it down so you can build it back up mm -hmm. well if you broke it down and then you just exercise it to break it down further it's not building back up. It's got more work to do. It's got twice the amount of work. When you rest and recover, that's when you build back up. Uh, I think it was Scott Walker I was listening to talking about sleep. The uh, Basically, what we know about sleeping is that when you're awake, you're exposing yourself to low-level brain damage. And then when you rest, you're repairing that brain damage. But that's the analogy. When you rest, you heal. When you're active, you're stimulating. So that's that. But the point is, is that the innate immune system is active right away when you injure tissue. Okay? So that's pretty good. Now, let's talk about exercise. When you exercise, you can develop what's called DOMS or exercise soreness. And uh, we, for the most part, we traditionally think of DOMS as related to or release in substrates like lactic acid buildup, carbon dioxide buildup, nitrous oxide buildup, uh, decrease gly glycogen or glucose, decrease energy, and increase in particles that either depress our, uh, our uh, pH level within the, the spaces between the cells or within the blood supply. And so we say, oh, you're sore because your body's buffering those metabolites. That's not necessarily true either. What do you know about that? When you exercise, why do you get why do you get sore after or even during exercise? That's kind of the, what I've always heard of. Okay, is that that buildup of metabolites, and it's you're yeah. trying to facilitate your body to get those out to clean to clear that area um, of that soreness, like stretching and. Um, you know, if you do like a heavy squat day and you're really sore the next day, they say like do like body weight squats or just a similar motion to, to work those muscles that you just worked to help facilitate circulation to get those metabolites out of there. Right. We also talk about massage and as you said, stretching. And Well, it turns out that that may have a role, but it may not be the primary reason. So you have changed your, your pH balance within the system, uh, which your kidneys are responsible, uh, along with the lungs, and maintain um, the, the pH uh, balance of the blood supply. 
uh, which is typically neutral, right? Mm -hmm. Or a little, little higher. So you don't want to get too acidic. You don't want to get it too alkalinic. And then your lungs, you know, when you breathe, then it also tries to balance out the uh, acidity and alkalinity of the, of the pulmonary function of your lungs. And they work together in harmony to kind of keep you relatively neutral, you know. Or static. Right. So that, that may have something to do with the metabolites as well. So you're trying to buffer them. But the biggest reason it turns out, or appears to be within the literature, is that when you exercise, again, you're stimulating your body. How do you stimulate your body? From a number of different angles. But when you're talking about the muscles, you're talking about the ligaments, you're talking about the fascia, those muscles pull on the fascia, pull on the bone, pull on ligaments and capsules. What happens is you're causing micro tears. You're breaking the muscle down. You know what I'm talking about. You're breaking the muscle down so when you rest and sleep and recover, you build it back up. And unlike on non-biological tissue, biological tissue works in the fact that when you break it down and it builds itself back up, it builds itself back up so it's better than it was before. Stronger. Bigger, stronger, faster, tighter, uh, more flexible, whatever it may be. But it's better in the sense that it's not going to break down from that same thing that you just broke it down with. And that's how you get stronger with exercise. That's how your bones get stronger. So the concept is when you have impact exercise, you, you accrue micro fractures, which then repair themselves when you're resting to, to make it stronger so that way in the end, you're less likely to suffer a fracture. Same thing with muscle. Well, if you're breaking it down, what are you doing there? Inflammation. We have an inflammatory response, mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. And that's the innate immune system coming in, increasing the temperature, having a little bit of swelling, bodybuilders all the time, they want to get a good pump right before they get on stage. So they try to express those tissues a little bit because they're going to swell a little bit. Or in the gym, with bro science, we say, I'm swole. I'm swole today, all right? But it's the infl inflammation. So you're trying to basically buffer the inflammatory proteins. You're trying to basically recover from the infl inflammation process that you just put your body through. Hmm. Not to mention when you're using your muscles, you're working out, it's diverting that blood flow from your like digestive tract, for instance, to, to those muscles to increase the circulation, to increase those uh, inflammatory response to the to heal of the tissue. So that's when you get also the swelling, the, the, yeah. the yeah. what's it called, the transient hypertrophy. Yeah. And as well, and this is why uh, uh, creatine is so popular because you know you need water. It takes a water part particle with it and it helps you swell a little bit more, and it also gives you a little bit more uh, a storage for more energy to be used for type one muscle fibers. Uh -huh. But so the, the bulk of delayed onset of muscle soreness most likely is due to a reaction to a systemic inflammation of that area. Mm -hmm. Okay, until you recover and build it back better. So, with increased muscle soreness, let's say two days after a heavy lift, is that you're saying it's related to the amount of tissue damage that you caused? Yeah. That's so right. the, the 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 heavier, more intense workout you had, the more soreness you have because of the breakdown of tissue. That's right. That's right. The more as, intense... a, as opposed to the metabolites that are. That's right. Trapped in the in the muscle, That's right. for instance. Okay. Yeah, and this is a newer uh, thought process. This is not something that is necessarily 
being taught in the school because it's new mm-hmm. and it takes a while for things to get in, in, into play. But uh, that's that's where we're at. We're thinking that it's it's due to an inflammatory response uh, by breaking down the tissue when you exercise, so you can build it build it up. So tying this back in, it almost goes back to the discussion we had earlier of exposing yourself to um, you know viruses, bacteria to have a better acquired immune system. As the same thought process, you're breaking down your muscles, you're exposing it to these um, processes, this inflammation, so your body can heal quicker, better, faster. That's right. When you're taking on a challenge, you're putting your body through a challenging movement, activity, to get it stronger, to make it stronger. Mm -hmm. And that... Ain't nothing wrong with getting strong. Nothing wrong with getting strong. Try... Adam Eakins. Yep, trying to get our patients to understand some of this concept because it seems to me to us maybe relatively simple that if we want to get stronger we do something hard a lot of people don't like doing stuff doing something hard and a lot of people fear that if they do something hard they're going to hurt or be hurt from it and while yes they may be a little bit sore um for a few days the, that you know is almost the goal. Is almost the goal to get to a point where you challenged your body enough to stimulate that healing. You have to take it down a little bit uh, to stimulate that strengthening process. The whole you know inflammation rehabilitation process. But but the argument isn't about strength. We always say strength in, in our profession. It's really about resilience. You're trying to be more resilient. It's getting the body used to you know. Break down recovery, break down recovery, break down recovery. It becomes more efficient in that process. And the more you build it up, the harder you have to work to break it down mm-hmm. because it's resilient, right? Yeah. And that's and what's. The plateau and, effect. That's right. And that's why seasoned trainers are like, oh, I just wish I could get sore. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, they train them to a, themselves to a point that they're able to handle a certain amount of stimulus. And the people that have never exercised a day in their life, they don't know what a squat is. They do two of them, they're like, oh, I'm done. You know, for the day. <laughs> but, but I mean, they, they're not resilient because they haven't been exposed. It may, be not, it may not be necessary for the common person to constantly need to go through that continuous breakdown, regenerate or re- recover, breakdown, recover, to tolerate normal activities. We're trying to just get that, build that tolerance or build that resiliency to Carrying the groceries in from the car, pulling out a pack of water or something from the car or from the bottom shelf to get it in your cart, lifting something like that without straining their body, without straining their back or their shoulder yeah. or something there. Making it functional. They should, be, functional. they should be functionally resilient. So in other words, if the tissue is only capable of handling three pounds of torque, but they need to apply seven pounds of torque, they're going to hurt themselves. And just simple as that. If you can get them to develop a sense of resilience where they can handle 10 pounds of torque and they only generate 7 pounds of torque, they're less vulnerable to injury. Okay, and that's the, that's the point. And, and then, as you were saying, everything's a cycle. You have a, you have a cyclical metabolic uh, system, a cyclical immunity system, cycle, everything is cyclical. cyclical. You have circadian rhythm is cyclical. There's a ton of different things that are cyclical. So although you don't need to keep putting them through this rigorous cycle of build up, break down, build up, break down, you do want to help them develop a sense of resilience so that they can grab the milk 
out of the trunk or a bag of dog food, a bag of dog food for their little Bichon to, in, in the house without them throwing out their back, you know, mm-hmm. or pulling their biceps or ripping their rotator cuff or whatever it may be. You've got to develop some resilience no matter what. And it doesn't have to be, we're talking musculoskeletal uh, or as Adam Meekins would say, musculoskeletal, uh, musculoskeletal, yeah. But we're also talking about pulmonary function. We're talking about cardiovascular mm-hmm. function. We're talking about skin elasticity. You can talk about dental hardness. You can talk about a number of different things. Yeah, and this is like the macro scope of it. This is like where it gets to the functional level, but even on the micro level, that this is like what we're talking about, the, the inflammation and the stages of healing. You know, yeah. going back to you know, the immune function of the, of the whole thing of just being able to repair better, being resilient, like you're, like you're saying. Exactly, exactly right. So we talked about the stages of tissue healing. Now let's go to the open windows hypothesis. I think that's a good segue to go into that. Mm-hmm. What do you know about the open window hypothesis? Or do you, or should I explain it? No, I, 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 I've heard that with prolonged exercise. So I've, I've heard, what I've heard is like, 90 minutes of aerobic activity, walking, or walking, running, cycling, that sort of thing, that you work your body to a point to where when you're recovering, you actually have a decrease immune function for a couple hours or at a time period where you're actually more susceptible to have exposure to an infection or mm-hmm. um, bacteria or viral um, infection. So it's, it's that open window. You have yeah. that open window of um, increased exposure. Yeah, so... Susceptibility. Yeah, exactly. And this is a little contentious. There's a bit of a debate in medicine about this. Um, and, and there is some clarity to it. It's not necessarily uh, been shown either way to be true or not true. But the idea is, uh, you know, if you have a patient come in, and you're treating them for whatever it is, let's say for back pain, and they're sick. They're not, they're not COVID sick. They're just sick. <laughs> they have a cold. Yeah. My patients come in COVID sick. COVID. <laughs> they have. They, they call me back later. Hey, so oh, this tested positive. And just wanted um, you know, I wanted you to know I was there yesterday. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. I knew it. I was I having earlier. Oh, gosh. And, uh, <laughs> what time? <laughs> but, you know, I'm like, okay. But yeah, go on, sorry. No, no, no. Yeah, they tell you that, you know, I found out the day before, but I wanted you to know that. I yeah. forgot. <laughs> but um, so you see this person, they're sick. You know, you can tell they're sick. They're not, they're particularly, they just look like they're sick. What do you do as a physical therapist? Do you tell them, and let's, what, what do you do? What do you do? Well, I, I think it depends on what their symptoms are. T- typically, my rule of thumb is if it's above the neck, you know, sinus, runny nose, um, those sort of symptoms, I, I think they're okay to continue exercising within the session. If they're having any sort of below-the-neck symptoms, you know, muscle aches, um, coughing, trouble breathing, you know, the, the lung uh, inflammation or, or congestion, that's where I'm a little bit more, let's take it easy, let's, let's rest, or that sort of thing. That's, that's my That's my rule of thumb. Yeah, so... Yeah, and traditionally, Joe, traditionally, what's the, the view in uh, physical medicine as far as a patient is sick? That, that's what we've done for years is, uh, for years we've, we've said if they came in sick, that, you know, you 
probably better off just taking the day off or taking some rest and not exerting yourself too strongly because we don't want to open that window to increase or de well, to, to decrease your immune response to this sickness or this illness uh, and allow you to kick this thing faster. We don't want to prolong your sick time mm -hmm. by, by weakening your body for that for this time. And, and to explain that further, when you have an open window of exercise and it depresses your immune system, that allows the infection or whatever is making you sick to get stronger and are more resilient. They start to make more babies, they become more abundant, they start to attack the body a little bit more without anything like defending yourself. And that's probably because, sorry to interrupt, the, mm -hmm. the body's more focused on repairing the tissue that you just worked. So with, mm -hmm. with that exercise that you just did, and then you're more susceptible to this virus, it has more of a chance to proliferate. So that's one camp, that's one thought process. So on one side, people are saying that. On the other side, what we're finding is that the depression, the immunosuppression after exercise is not true. What happens is you get a, a transition of the immune system. There's a transient effect. Okay? So let me see if I can find it. Yeah, so John Campbell and James Turner wrote an article about this. What they found was that with exercise, and it's particularly low to moderate exercise when you're not feeling well, it increases that immunoglobulin A, so IgA, okay, which again is part of the innate immune system. It's like a vaccination, okay? Um, it also, and they, they found that to be true in, this, in particularly the saliva. They also found that there is a redistribution of the lymphocytes from the blood supply to the peripheral tissues, okay? And so when you take a blood sample and you look at you know, the immune system, white blood cells in the blood supply, you see a decrease in the lymphocytes. And so we oftentimes attribute that to immunosuppression after exercise. Mm -hmm. and that's yeah. not true. But it happens is the, the lymphocytes migrate from the blood supply to the tissues. Why? Mm -hmm. Because you just had some inflammatory you processes. Peripheral tissues, which tissues? Whatever area that you're whatever area that you're predominantly working. It could right. be it could be arms or legs. It could be a whole it could be it's it's systemic at the most part. Probably legs where they would be in the, the muscles, the quads, glutes, hamstrings, that those tissues? The, yeah, exactly. Out, outside of the blood supply into other tissues like not integumentary tissues or it could be, but it's not within the blood supply. Okay. Okay. Uh, and then predominantly thinking they're the thinking that even though it could, it's most likely systemic it's most likely in an area that you, you're probably engaging, especially if you're being specific in certain exercise, like squats, versus uh, running that's working your entire body. So there's a migration of these lymphocytes from the blood supply into the peripheral spaces of the tissues, okay? And so that looks like the open window concept, but it's it's not really, not really true. And in fact, what happens, your immune system becomes heightened. It goes on like red alert. So it, it becomes heightened and it starts to surveil and regulate your body, okay, with more sensitivity. It, with frequent exercise, they found that the immune system also becomes more competent. So in, in other words, it's more efficient. It's more um, capable of like doing its job, okay, and more ready to enact change and to produce the, the, uh, the byproducts, the, the, the substrates that it needs to to help you overcome whatever it is that you overcome. It also limits and delays the aging of your immune system. So it helps your immune system stay young or younger. It enhances what's called the immune response to vaccination. 
So what they did was is they took these people and they exercised them and gave them the vaccination. And then they looked at and then they exercised them again and looked at them. And what they found was that the vaccination had a stronger response and in, in their immune system with the combination of exercise. So exercise allowed for that vaccination to work better. Mm. Isn't that cool? It's kind of cool, right? Something they don't the public health sector left out. No, but think <laughs> but think about it. You know, they didn't now, tell us that. Get get the vaccination, but also stay physically active, right? Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. And also if you're physically active, that kind of Helps help the circulation of the vaccina- vaccination and won't hurt so much. Yeah, you, you say that. Move your arm around. Make sure mm-hmm. you move your arm today. Yeah, yeah, totally. It then also increases immunoglobulin G, immunoglobulin B, which are also um, uh, uh, like uh, vaccination like uh, 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 elements of the innate immune system. It decreases the severity of your infections and it increases your survival rate to those infections. Okay. They also found that it increases viral clearance, meaning that it decreases the viral load within the body and it gets rid of it right away, quicker. And then the other is that it um, decreases inflammatory reactions, not from the extra, but decreases inflammatory reactions from the infections. Why? Because it's clearing it quicker and it's also killing it sooner. Yeah. So then they also found that T uh, cells become more mobile, which makes sense because they're those are probably the cells that are leaving the blood supply and going to the peripheral tissues. And they also enhance the proliferation, meaning that it helps the immune system make more T cells for the for any type of immune situation. Pretty cool. And so that's a lot. I mean, you, you, you think about, you know, you're, you're improving one area, but you're not just improving one area, you're improving 10 areas. You know, you just uh-huh. name like 10 different things. So it's, it's improving it tenfold. And again, in, exactly. that, in that regard. Yeah. It's not just hitting an innate immunity, which is your first line of defense. It's also impacting your your second line of defense, the acquired immunity, mm-hmm. and it's multifactorial. And this is the beauty of like what you're studying, of what you're doing with your career, is that the body is multifactorial. Everything that the body does, there's more than one purpose for it, mm-hmm. more than one purpose for it. And so it's absolutely, in my perspective, extremely beautiful. Um, that's a, that's an interesting point. If we can go back. Sure. That the, you said the white blood cells move into the peripheral tissue, aka the the, the tissue that you're working with, the, the exercise tissue. Yeah, the spaces in between the cells. Okay. Uh, yeah. And so in the research, they're taking blood samples or saliva samples to test for this IgA, the immunoglobulin A, mm-hmm. to, to look for the immune function, right? Mm-hmm. But if they, if those white blood cells have already gone to the peripheral tissue, they won't be in the, the saliva or what they're testing. Well, the IgA will be. The, the, the research initially for the open window hypothesis didn't necessarily look at saliva or even mucosal linings uh, where IgA tends to hang out. Mm. Okay, you, you have it embedded in those uh, areas uh, because, again, it's a, it's a vaccination against invaders. Okay, what you, what you see, though, is that with exercise, the easiest way to do it is exercise somebody, then take a blood sample and compare that to the blood sample that you took before exercise mm-hmm. and see what happens to those white Because we know in the blood, right, you don't have just red blood cells. It's platelets, stem cells, you know, mm-hmm. uh, growth factors, cytokine, all these different things, white blood cells being part of it. And so if you see a decrease in concentration of the white blood cells, the argument is then at that point, well, the, there's immunosuppression. Right. Which, in fact, you're not getting a clear picture because you're only looking at that circulatory system. Mm-hmm. When in, the immune system is not involved in just the uh, arterial system, it's not just involved in the circulation. 
It's everywhere. Mm. So at this point, people are saying, okay, well, now we're finding that IgA increases with saliva. It also increases with the mucosal lining. Now we know that. But is there immunosuppression in the circulatory system? Oh, no. It's actually just a migration. Mm. They're just moving. Mm -hmm. They're That's just moving to an area, most likely the area that you're working, because what would we say causes soreness? An inflammatory response. And what is responsible? What what does the innate immunity do to the inflam to inflammation? If exercise breaks it down, breaks down the tissue. The stage one is the uh, hemostasis. Mm -hmm. Stage two is inflammation. And stage two, the innate immune system comes in and starts to eat the tissue that's damaged, get rid of it. Starts to produce cytokines. So it makes the immune system work. Exactly. It stimulates it. So, exactly. Yeah. And, and we, you're sore. We should also note too that this immune suppression that there that was previously hypothesized was only in reaction to intense, high, vigorous exercise. It wasn't in low or moderate exercise levels. Well, yes, and, and we actually have some that are trying that too, but uh, so exactly. Um, yep. And so the innate immune system comes in during an inflammatory response. That's why a lot of times when you're not feeling well, when you're sick, you're, you're, you're a little sore, you know? Kind of similar to being sore when you exercise, too. You know, you get those muscle aches. Mm. So you can see that there's a shared response there, possibly. So when you exercise, your immune system, perhaps, is just ready to go. You know, it's been, you know, command center called it up and said, hey, listen, Get the fighter, you know, the fighter pilots ready. Let's battle. Let's prepare the the battleships. Let's get the marines, you know, in step and and prepare the army for invasion. So really, this exercise thing makes you proactively um, better for a, your ability to fight infection. But similar to like taking like a daily vitamin. This, That's right. This is like your exercising is your like daily vitamin essentially. That's right. That's a great way to say it. Actually, it's like a daily vitamin. Yeah. That's perfect. Um, okay. Well, well, let's move on here. Uh, so we've got that part. Uh, now, there is some literature that basically shows that low and moderate uh, intensity exercise, uh, meaning that the, the intensity of the exercise is less than, like, like anywhere from, like, I want to say 75% or less, or even, like, 50% or less uh, of the intensity of the workout. That's more appropriate for somebody who's not feeling well. So that heightens the immune system without causing too much in, of an inflammatory response. It decreases inflammation and it, it, it allows them to overcome the infection. But again, to go back to your point though, with high intensity exercise, 75% or higher, even 90% or more, if you're redlining the system, you are going to incur more cellular damage, which is, causes inflammation. So your immune system is going to have to do two different things. It's going to have to help you in response to repair the tissues that you broke down, as well as fight any sort of foreign invaders. So it's not that it's suppressed, it's just that it's busy now. It's mm -hmm. got two different things to do. Mm -hmm. It's being flanked. So it's got to fight on both fronts. Okay? So that's the idea. So uh, from a, a provider standpoint, you have a patient that comes in, they are there for shoulder pain, and they um, have a, a cold. Light to moderate ex exercise will do them no harm. If you send them on their way because they're sick, you're really doing them a disservice, not just from their shoulder pain, but also a disservice from the fact that they could better fight the infection with a little bit of light. And you don't have to do it that long. You could probably shorten the session. Just give them some 
low intensity and the moderate intensity exercise and I'll help them. Can we, can we try and uh, define what low and moderate intensity exercise is for the, the, the lay person or the provider? Yeah, you, you, uh, that's a tough one because a lot of different literature goes back and forth on what that is. They talk about heart rate. They talk about the intensity again. Uh, they talk, you basically shouldn't be out of breath. Shouldn't, be, <laughs> yeah. shouldn't have that effect. And you also shouldn't have that effect to where you're like, oh, just can't get, you're fatigued and you can't go any further. Mm-hmm. It should be enough so you can still talk, but maybe it's a little difficult to talk. Uh, but afterwards, you're you're alert, but not exhausted. Yeah. So for for my patients, I like to I like to oversimplify it and yeah. just go. You know, your one to ten RPE scale. There you go. Greater perceived exertion. So you want to stay within that four to six mm-hmm. range for moderate exercise, and then typically that that three to four for low low activity. That's right. With with one being kind of your baseline. That's right. And as far as the time is concerned. You can you can do about to ten minutes, or you can do twenty to like fifty minutes of continuous work if you want. Mm-hmm. But you don't have to do an hour. You don't have to do ninety. Um, a little goes a long way. Yeah, and then and then also telling your patients, you know, an, an easy way for them to gauge it at home how how intense they're exercising is. You want to be able to talk while you're while you're exercising while you're walking, but you're not able to sing. Yeah, that's a great way to say it. What did you say? What were you going to say? I thought you were. I don't know. Uh, I don't remember. You can't sing. Well, I was thinking about <laughs> when I'm running, and I have been. I've been <clears throat> pretty much engaged in conversation through a, a five mile run, um, but not able to sing. I wouldn't be able to sing. Definitely, there's times when I'm my sentences get shorter. Mm-hmm. I cut out some of the words that aren't really needed. <laughs> <But> <laughs> Less we, word, do trick. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's been a, a good gauge for the training. Yeah, that that's, would be moderate intensity, and that's good for to give your patients to mm-hmm. help them gauge it at home. Yeah. yeah. All right, some literature by Stephanie Francois Berman and Andrea Tanessi, uh, as well as their colleagues, um, and these are two different studies. They agreed upon, and they basically found that when you exercise, you decrease the pathogens and the the gastrointestinal mucosal layer, and also the circulatory system. So what that means is you're decreasing the amount of invaders in the spaces. Okay, you increase the uh, the biodiversity of the of the gut lining. So we're going to talk about like the microbiota, the microflora of the of the GI tract. And so that microflora, all the good microflora, becomes more biodiverse, which is a good thing for you. Because it helps you on so many different levels. And this is a huge topic of research with exercise, as well as nutrition. So when you exercise, you create more biodiversity. And what happens is, is that your adaptive immune system uh, becomes more sensitive, but starts talking to the mucosal bacteria, and the mucosal, the, muca, the mucus of the tissue. Okay, Your immune cells, we talked a little bit, Joe and I talked about vitamin A a little bit. You have T lymphocytes right within that lining. Your immune system hangs out right behind your your uh, gastrointestinal system, right behind your intestines, right behind your your stomach. So a lot of people who have back pain sometimes it's not because of legitimate back pain. Sometimes it's because they have a, a problem with their intestines, like leaky gut, and the immune system is attacking nutrients that are getting through the gut lining mm-hmm. and causing an inflammatory reaction, which spills over into the spine. Mm-hmm. 
okay? And they and it's perceived as low back pain. So, and this is more conceptual based, it's not necessarily proven yet, uh, but through functional medicine, that's the thought process. So when you exercise, you're strengthening that biodiversity of the microflora. You're, you're increasing the communication of your immune system to that uh, microflora within your gut lining, as well as the, mu the mucus. You, uh, you help it protect, uh, uh, you, the, the microbiome is then protected from inflammation. So your immune system purposely protects the good bacteria from an inflammatory process that would otherwise kill it. Because again, when you have inflammation, you get increased temperature, you get things that come in and eat it, you get things that come in that, uh, that, that enzymes that will degrade and kill it, and your immune system will protect it from that. It's able to differentiate that that's good bacteria, that's bad bacteria. And we're going to keep this guy alive, but kill that guy. Because that guy right there is going to help us. You know, you, you don't want to kill the civilian. No, that's right. <laughs> um, it also increases, again, immunoglobulin A and as well as immunoglobulin E within the mucosal lining. Okay, which again, it's like a vaccine. These are vaccinations. So it can help block those foreign invaders that are trying to, they're with nefarious intent, trying to get through the wall. You know, trying to get through the wall, Joe. <laughs> Build that wall. No. Uh, I think you know we put it up. We're just probably about to break it back down. Yeah, I think so. Then we'll put it up again. <laughs> Make it sticky, like the mucus. So um, exercise will activate the immune system by increasing the basophils and the mast cells that help you with allergic reactions, especially when you're talking about food intake, right? Peanuts, remember? It also helps protect the uh, the lining of the intestines, the lining of your stomach, or you have endothelial cells that, that line that, that create mucus and such like that, and they protect the uh, microvilli, which help you break down and absorb nutrients. Um, so your exercise will help the, uh, activate the immune system so it can better protect the outer lining of your gut. All right. It also, again, creates an antimicrobial peptide, peptides that are released into the gut to basically prevent anything coming into the cell, sticking to the cell, um, it scrubs it, cleans it. It's like sanitizer. You know, every, the immune system releases some, some sanitizer so the microvilli can rub their fingers together because yeah, that's a nutrition joke. They're like little fingers. Yeah. And so they clean their fingers and they're less likely to get sick. Interesting. Isn't that cool? Um, okay, let's go here. So it also promotes microflora uh, and immune system crosstalk. We talked about that. So they're communicating. And you're talking about foreign entities, good bacteria, good viruses, good protozoa, good microflora, talking with your immune system saying, hey, not me. I'm working on my visa here. That guy is the one that came through the wall. <laughs> he's the one with the, with the drugs, right? And he's got the fentanyl. He's got the fentanyl. And so your immune system can go get it and, and protects the, the microbiota. It releases hormones. Uh, well, okay. So as it's talking to the microbiota, the microbiota does many, many things. It will start to uh, facilitate the release of hormones and neurotransmitters to better communicate with the rest of your body from an inflammatory reaction to uh, immunoprotection and tissue healing. It also, and so that's through like dopamine and serotonin and uh, uh, GABA, and then, or gamma, I mean, 
and then it also synthesizes uh, the the microflora will synthesize uh, butyrate, acetate, and propanate, short chain fatty acids that we would otherwise have a hard time getting from our foods, so that the uh, our body can absorb and use them as nutrients, especially these cells within the in, uh, the GI tract. So they say, listen, you protect us, we will produce nutrients that you have a hard time protecting. So we live in symbiosis. Ain't that cool? It's nice. And that's why Border Patrol protects them. Um, okay, so Zane <laughs> found that regular exercise, so he looked at people who did who participate in regular exercise versus sedentary, uh, sedentary behavior, so sedentary control. He found that they had no significant changes in cytokines. Cytokines, remember, the majority of them are pro-inflammatory. So the exercise group and the sedentary group did not have a difference in cytokine production. He also found that exercise decreases um, the uh, T cells and natural killer cells within the peripheral blood supply. So again, most likely they're migrating to the peripheral tissues. All right, They do increase, it's going to be tough here, uh, I don't want to go into too much detail because I don't want to confuse people, but it's called uh, inter, um, I'm sorry, interferon and a tumor necrosis factor, um, and interleukins, uh, which are cytokines that are secreted by your um, peripheral blood. Uh, I'm trying to think, I can't remember the acronym. They're, they're made to basically. They're made basically to help you fight off foreign invaders. They uh, and and he found that they increase with exercise when you are when they purposely infected somebody and they heated up uh, strep to basically be activated, so it would do its damage. And the exercise protected them from that by producing those. But when they didn't do that, it did not. They didn't respond that way. So it didn't just have an immune response just by exercise and have an immune response when you exercise when you had those uh, uh, when you when you were already sick. Not sure that I'm following you. Okay. I'm trying. <laughs> Alright. So basically the subjects um I'm trying to remember the acronym here. They they basically had uh I believe it was streptococcus and they had or they had an additional, oh, that's right, hepatitis B, okay? And what they did was with the streptococcus is that they heated it uh, with, uh, I can't remember how they heated it, but it was heat activated. So that way the streptococcus could then proliferate and do mm -hmm. its harm. Sure. And those individuals exercised. And what they found was when those people who were infected, who were infected with those issues, they didn't infect them and then exercise. They already had the infections. When they... Uh, Exercise, the body produced certain uh, cytokines to, that combated and killed those that infection. Whereas people that were sedentary did not. Okay. So, in other words, you're sick, you exercise, your body's going to respond, not just from, uh, respond to attack the, the infection that you already have. Kind of what we already talked about before. Okay? okay. In a specific manner. It's like, Again, we talked about exercise activates the immune system and puts it on like high alert and surveillance. So all of a sudden, those guys are you're already sick. 
your immune system might be aware or maybe not really aware. It's a little groggy. You exercise, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, shit, it's over there. Kicks into the gear. Kicks into the gear. Mm -hmm. And then he also found that that increased uh, cytokines by the dendritic cells uh, when when you were sick as well. So it was cytokines with uh, that have uh, interferon neuron alpha, uh, interleukin twelve, interleukin six, neurofactor alpha, interferon neuron uh, uh, gamma as well, uh, were were basically kicked into gear to fight the infection. The, you also had an increase in what's called toll-like receptors. Uh, toll-like receptors are basically um, things that the immune system uses that tells the acquired immune system to do its job. Remember I said it activates, it stimulates the acquired immune system to do its job? That's how it does it. Okay. Okay? So when you're sick, what saying is saying is when you're sick and you have an active infection and you do some exercise on a regular basis, your immune system kicks in the gear and starts to take care of that shit. Low intensity exercise just to get things moving. I, I didn't go into it with the exercise with them, but uh, so I couldn't tell you what exactly what type of exercise they use. But uh, so I don't know that. But um, most like typically, typically yeah, low intensity more, yeah. aerobic exercise yeah. gets things moving, gets things flowing, mm-hmm. all uh, all good things. So in Shabab, Shabab M at Al Qaeda found that resistance training and aerobic training, not together necessarily, but as two different modes of exercise, they both increase your immunity. So you don't have to go for a run to improve your immunity. You can actually lift weights. And you don't have to lift weights to improve your immunity. You can go for a run or a bike ride or a walk. Those, they both, anaerobic and aerobic, will affect your immunity and decrease your inflammation. Now, the decrease in inflammation was stronger in the aerobic group. Which I thought was interesting. But that's what he found. Cock. I do have to go soon, by the way. Okay, how much time we got? It's like 12.30. Okay. Well, let's go through this real quick. Cock found that you increase, with exercise, you increase epinephrine, you increase norepinephrine, you recruit lymphocytes, you uh, activate the sympathetic nervous system, which then activates your uh, innate immune system, um, and that decreases the tissue damage from exercise active in your immune system. So again, when it migrates, it might be helping you prevent, you know, helping you recover from that active, from that exercise, that breakdown from exercise. Yeah. It could also lower your dimes then, as we said earlier. Well, that's one reason, like, when you're talking about, you know, if you're going to be sore after exercise, don't be sedentary, move, mm-hmm. right? We thought because you're buffering metabolites and increasing circulation, but it might also be because it helps you heighten that immune system. Yeah. Help you, yeah, 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 exactly. Um, Giselle Soares Bezos, she found that moderate exercise over the long term improves one's ability to sleep, which helps you with the recovery. Mm -hmm. It decreases cortisol production, decreases depression, increases your immunity by promoting anti-inflammatory and anti-atherogenic changes. And then finally, I want to go this real quick. There is a downside. If you overtrain either with anaerobic or aerobic work, you have you can cause uh, inflammation, which is hard to recover from. 
and for certain populations, we talked about this earlier, certain populations are harder than others. You can cause a dysbiosis, which means that you can impair, the, you can, if your immune system has to do two different things, address the inflammation caused from the exercise, as well as the, the communication from the gut. If it's doing both of those things, it means it's going to talk less to your gut, and therefore it's going to, it's going to, it's a, its ability to help the gut is less, right? Because it's, it's doing two different things. It's not good at multitasking, I guess you could say. So um, if you overtrain, you can decrease your crosstalk between the mucosal lining of your gut and your immune system. You also have, uh, you can increase the cytokine production that can cause more tissue damage. Okay, so think about that in rhabdomyolysis, right? Rhabdomyolysis is a serious condition where you break down the muscle, the muscle cannot repair itself. And then you have this increased buildup of potassium, which can then cause pulmonary and cardiovascular uh, distress and failure. So it's it's basically uh, a result of an inflammation, systemic inflammation you can't recover from. I think this also goes into like the, the overtraining, like you said, like let's, let's take a long distance runner, for instance, who is running quite a bit of miles and develops, you know, Achilles tendonitis or some, some sort of tendinopathy where they don't give their body enough time to heal itself. So they're in this constant stage of inflammation and there, there's never time for uh, a recovery phase and, right. and you get into this uh, cycle. Here. That's right. That's exactly right. Um, so yeah, if you're producing a lot of cytokines to help with the the inflammation, some of the cytokines are pro-inflammatory, you're going to get that tissue and not recover, and you're right. Um, the other thing, too, is that they found, too, in athletes particularly, that overtrain, they are more susceptible to upper respiratory tract infections. But think about it, if they're constantly going, and they're, like, sucking in wind, you know, you're sucking in not just air, you're sucking in, like, potential... Invaders. Not to mention you're you're around like other teams, other players. You're you're, you're cross contaminating. Okay. And it's usually high intensity exercise. So you're facing inflammatory condition, and that's where maybe that open window perspective may not be exactly uh, 100 true, but uh, there might be some leg uh, legitimacy to it, and and the fact that you may have an opportunity to, to be introduced to an upper upper track infection. Mm -hmm. So. Um, and that's all I have. Do you have anything else that you want to talk about or anything else? I would just say, you know, that, that was a lot of good uh, micro detail of like how exercise boosts the immune system. But from a macro scale, you, you kind of briefly mentioned it in that last study of how it, you know, decreases depression, um, you know, helps you sleep, all of these things that, that help you in a day to day. So exercise does give you a, a quick boost of energy. You know, you may have more energy to cook a better meal you might be more inclined to eat healthier. That comes mm -hmm. into the whole nutrition aspect. So and exercise can help you sleep better, the, the recovery process better. It just has so many um, functionalities, not yeah. not even micros, micro, micro perspective of, of your you know white blood cells, but your, your macro perspective. You feel good because you're releasing health hormones that make you feel better. Dopamine, yeah. Yeah, dopamine, oxytocin. Oxytocin makes you feel great, okay, mm -hmm. and uh, a positive response. When you don't exercise, you're more likely to produce cortisol or catecholamines, which can make you feel kind of crappy, and they're pro-inflammatory. Uh, oxy, uh, oxytocin is an anti-inflammatory. Um, you also improve the, the central nervous system's ability to communicate to the body, and therefore uh, utilize that memory and that neurological effect to, to take care of itself. But the point is, is that um, 
does exercise help with immunity? If I ask, a, and I've asked this question to providers, I say, does exercise improve immunity? They say, yeah, sure it does, of course. Everybody knows that. How? Why? They can't tell you. It's hard to tell you the detail. They probably learned it, but they haven't had to express it or utilize it. And so the purpose of this uh, topic today was to really dive into the details so that if you are that person that likes the detail, it, or if you want to know exactly why, or if you are using the open window hypothesis, you might change the way you practice. Um, or if you are an athlete training or a person that's trying to get healthier because of COVID, you might change the way you train to help yourself. And you might, or you might have some motivation to go do it. So that's the idea. That's the idea. And we want to educate and inform and, and hopefully transcend the ideas of exercise for immunity. And so now somebody says to you, how does it help? Why does it help? You may not need to go into detail, but you could certainly give them like a quick summary mm -hmm. from hormonal, neurological, to the gut lining, to innate, to acquired. Hit play on this podcast episode. Show them that Well, okay, so Caleb's got to go. So we're going we're gonna to probably end this. Uh, the last thing I want to do is, again, I want to send a shout out and a thank you to a few people that have inspired this podcast. Uh, we've been sitting on it for a couple of years. And if it wasn't for these individuals, we probably wouldn't get going. So uh, I want to say thank you to Joe Rogan, Sam Harris, Sean Carroll, and Adam Eakins. Um, those guys, uh, hopefully I'm standing on their shoulders and I'm doing them justice. But I'm very grateful and honored um, to do the podcast. And if it wasn't for you, I don't think we would be inspired to do so. The other thing we want to talk about is, uh, before we go, is that... Uh, Although we plan on keeping this free for everybody, uh, if there's an opportunity to, to monetize this or if you feel compelled to donate to Patreon to help us continue to uh, keep this podcast alive, um, or if you think that just by subscribing and listening to it for free is enough, that's fine too. We need as many subscriptions as possible to achieve that. But 25% of any uh, monetary proceeds that we receive will go to... Uh, cystic fibrosis will go to muscular dystrophy and also go to uh, spinal muscular atrophy so we will be donating that money to those charities to support children that will hopefully with our technology these days never have to deal with the signs or symptoms of those conditions and help those that unfortunately have been a victim of those congenital disorders and and maybe also improve the uh, research so we want to make sure that you understand that we are, that's something that we really care about and we plan on, on donating that, that, uh, that monetization to those uh, charities. So I appreciate your time today. Thank you very much for listening. Caleb, awesome job. I appreciate everything. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, You're thank welcome you for back anytime. Awesome, pleasure. Welcome back anytime, right? Anytime. All right. Well, then, take it easy, buddy. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much, guys. That was yeah. fun.